Well, church, we have another fun and exciting adventure in Haggai this morning. Uh, lots, lots more encouragement. There's definitely not going to be any convicting anything again today. That was all last week. No, there's more to come, I'm afraid to say. But you know, uh, I was encouraged, and I just want to share this before I kind of jump in. I was encouraged last week. So last week was a hard message, wasn't it? Uh, Haggai basically is a, a rebuke from God to his people about putting our own interests first instead of the kingdom of God. And we kind of started with that verse right in the beginning, and I'll just display it again this week from Matthew 6.33. It's really an embodiment of what Jesus was saying when he said, seek first his kingdom, seek first his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And so last week we looked at the idea of seeking first the kingdom. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the all else that will be added. All these things will be given unto you if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But there's still that, uh, that urgency of, of conviction in this passage. And, and I, so what I was saying is I was encouraged that last week that so many of you responded. Some of you emailed me, grabbed me after the, after the service, and you said, thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving that kind of message today. Because as I shared last week, these are not really my favorite types of sermons to preach. Uh, I think there's some people who take a, a, bit of a, a bit of a pleasure in preaching these kind of sermons. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that makes me a little uncomfortable. And I wonder, what's going on inside that person's heart? Because some people seem to really revel in, uh, in, in you know, the, the, these hard-hitting sermons. Uh, and, you know, not to judge anyone else's too much. It's just a question. But for me, it, it definitely brings up this thing inside of like, you know, I want to talk about happy stuff. I don't want to talk about hard stuff. But you encourage me. So I'm going to bring a really hard-hitting sermon today. No, I, I, I think I, I have been so encouraged this last week. And I was sharing with our team up here before we started rehearsal um, that I have just been kind of like swimming in Haggai for the last two weeks, and it has been so encouraging and so good for me. So I encourage you, you know, this is, it's two chapters in Haggai, we're doing it in two weeks, but don't let it go. Go back and read it, go back and meditate on it, pray through it. This is the kind of book that you can pray through, and just, you know, line by line, Lord, what are you speaking to me? What are you speaking to me? I know what you said to your people, you know, this is, uh, 2,500 years ago in, in Israel. But what are you speaking to me today uh, through this word? And so I just want to commend that to you. But with that, I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Haggai. We're going to look at chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole thing, but then we're actually going to look at it a little out of order. But I want you to get, you the, get the whole context for you. So we're just going to read it together. Again, one chapter. We're actually starting in the second half of verse 15 of chapter 1 where it, where it gives us our date. So here it goes. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, 
For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is des- I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. By the way, how many times does God have to remind us that he's the one talking here? Every single line. God is saying, this promise rests on me. Verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If anyone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from day one, from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone comes to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was only 20. I struck all the work of your hand with light, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time in the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn uh, royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will, will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. There's a lot in here. But a lot of what is said here really, really boils down to this one thing. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. You know, one of the things that strikes me as I've done my study this week is that God is constantly calling his people back to himself. We talked about this last week a little bit. I mean, I, I mentioned the history of Israel. You know, you've got uh, God calling his, his people out of Egypt, and he goes up, and, uh, you know, they come out to Mount Sinai, and he's giving them the Ten Commandments. And what are they doing down below at the bottom? 
Do you remember? They've got this golden calf that they're fashioning. And they don't just call this golden calf their God. They have the audacity to call him Yahweh. They said, here is Yahweh, the God who has taken you out of Egypt. You know, it's this golden calf. I don't remember the golden calf doing anything <laughs> to help them out of Egypt. Uh, and so God gets angry and, you know, Moses has to uh, beseech the Lord on behalf of the people. Forgive them, Lord. He's like, why don't I just kill them here in the desert? And he's like, no, that's not going to be a good look for you, God. I think we should go a different way. And God says, yeah, yeah, I know. I wasn't really going to do it. Let's, let's do it a different way. And he, he gives them the Ten Commandments and he calls them up to this mountain uh, because they, they've been wandering in the, in the wilderness. And why are they wandering in the wilderness, by the way? Anyone? God told them, go take this promised land. And they sent the 12 spies. And 10 out of the 12 said, we can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb were outnumbered. And so God says, all right, you're not going to enter the promised land. And he calls them to repentance. By the way, after he calls them to repentance, they try to take the promised land and, and they get routed. They, they have no success. Uh, and then he sends them on this journey through the wilderness. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about anything. And uh, it turns out they start worrying about things. <laughs> they start grumbling. Uh, we don't have any food. And God's like, I I'm going to give you manna. What is manna? It literally means, what is it? <laughs> we don't know. It means, what is it? Manna means, what is it? And uh, God gives them this food every day. And if they take more food than they need for the day, it rots. But they keep taking too much food, it rots. They finally start to learn their lesson. And finally, they're satisfied, right? Because they have their daily bread, right? Oh, wait, no. They complain that there's no meat. So then he sends these quail. And he sends so many quail that they're sick of meat. They're sick of quail. It's like, oh, Lord, anything but quail. And he's like, I've got some manna here for you. And then they don't have water. He's like, why did you bring us out here with no water? We'd be better off back in Egypt. And God's like, for real? Here's some water. And then they need water again. And I actually don't remember which one's which, but God either tells Moses to talk to the rock or hit the rock, and he does the opposite. He tells him to shout at the rock, and, and Moses hits the rock, because that's what he did last time. So God gets upset. And, and then he brings them into the promised land, right? He brings them in to the land that flowing with milk and honey, a land where they're, they're living in houses that they didn't build and they're drinking grapes from vines they didn't plant. And yet, they turn from God again and again and again and again and again. And he sends the Philistines and he sends the Amorites and he sends the Moabites and he sends the Thisites and the Thatites and the Thoseites. And they turn back to him, and then they just start all over again. And they say, we want a king. He's like, I'm your king, but we want a real king. And he's like, a real king? I'll show you a real king. And he gives them Saul, and Saul disobeys the Lord. And, and God says, I tell you what, I'm going to give you a good king. And he gives them David. So he gives them David, and it's going really well, really, really well, until it's not. Solomon's okay, but after Solomon, kingdom's divided. There's discord in the land, division, and, dis, and, and disobedience and rebellion. Even to the point where they're setting up multiple altars, not only to worship God, but then altars to worship the other gods of the surrounding nations. And God says, this land is going to be sick of you. It's going to spit you out. It's going to spit you out of its mouth. And he sends the people into exile. 
But before he sends the people into exile, he sends these armies to come. And we'll talk a little bit about it later, but these armies come and they literally strip Israel of everything of value and worth until finally they destroy the nation and they destroy the temple and the people are in exile. And God says, you know what? I really do love you. I'm not going to leave you in exile. Would you turn back to me and I'll bring you back? And so they turn back and he brings them back. He says, all right, here's what we're going to do. You're going to come back and you're going to rebuild the temple and you're going to rebuild Jerusalem. And they're like, yeah, we're going to do it. And they take some stones and they put them next to each other and then they go about their own business. And they forget all about what God has called them to do. And so what we see is that the people over and over and over again, not only are they rebelling against God and being drawn back, but after he brings them back and he tells them to build the temple, he has to tell them to build the temple over and over and over and over again. In the book of Ezra, Ezra tells them to rebuild it. He calls Ezra to, to lead them to rebuild the temple. And they start to build. They get the foundation set. And then they leave that foundation there for about 14 years. And then last week we read that, that Haggai calls them. Hey, you need to start building again. Have you noticed that when you plant something, it doesn't grow well? Have you noticed that things aren't working out for you? Have you noticed that there's a drought in the land? It's because you've put your house ahead of God's house. And again, we were really careful to say, there's not a one-to-one -one equivalent between the temple and this church, but there is an equivalent between the temple and the body of Christ. He says, it's, we use the same language Jesus used. Uh, they put their own kingdom ahead of God's kingdom. Right? He says, this isn't good. It's time to get to work. And they got really excited and they said, yes, we're going to do it. And how long did they keep doing it? They finished it, right? No, they didn't. Look at this little timeline. I don't know if you guys can read this at all. Can you read it? I'm going to read it for you just in case. There are people way smarter than I am who figured out the actual dates using our calendar of when these things happen. So when he says like, in the first day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius, well, they're like, that's August 29th, 520 BC. Pretty cool, huh? August 29th, Haggai challenges the people to build a temple. September 21st, 520 BC, so basically three weeks later, the people began to work on the temple. That's fair. It takes some time to start a building project, right? October 17th. How many weeks is that? Almost four weeks later, not quite. God encourages the people to trust his provision. Why is he encouraging them to trust his provision? Because they get stalled. They got stalled. And this isn't in this book, but in Zechariah. Sometime in November of 520, Zechariah tells the people to return to God from their rebellion. Why is he doing that? Because they're rebelling. <laughs> Guess what you're not doing when you're rebelling? Building a temple. My goodness. December 18th, Haggai warns the people about their impurity. Why is he doing that? Because they didn't listen to Zechariah a month earlier. Now, it would be so easy to think, 
Those people, why are they so stubborn? What's wrong with them? I mean, if God gave me his word directly and told me to stop doing things, I would stop doing it. Or if he told me to start, I'd probably start. Oh, wait. (laughs) Guys, we are no different than Israel, except in this. We have the Holy Spirit. So whenever you're not doing this, just remember what Philippians 2 says. For it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his purposes. By the grace of God, we don't always do this. But sometimes we still do, right? Sometimes we still do. And so this is the dynamic that God's dealing with in his people. And it's all over the Old Testament. And then we see it again in the New Testament. Do you know that almost every letter of Paul is written because the church is royally screwing things up? Sometimes we think, that, oh, we want to get back to the New Testament church. Oh, the New Testament church, the one with idol worship, uh, shrine prostitutes, uh, sleeping with your father's wife, that new early church, early century church. No, like, it was messed up too. God is always dealing with this with his people. And it does display to us two things. One, God is very patient, but he also, uh, he doesn't wait forever. He doesn't wait forever. So what's, what's going on? What's going on with the temple? Why is this such a big deal? Well, uh, I want to look at verse 10 again as we talk about the temple. Um, so this is where Haggai is reminding the people and helping them understand certain things about God's holiness. Uh, we'll skip the on the 20th day part and just go to verse 11. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and then touches some bread or stew with wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? All right, and so what would happen is, um, first of all, Remember, there is no temple right now, right? The temple's been destroyed. But they did set up an altar. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. They set up an altar, and they're performing sacrifices. And traditionally, the sacrifices, if they were going to be eaten by the priests, because the priests get to eat the food, basically an altar, a a temple, uh, it's basically one big cookout. And I don't want to diminish the the sacredness of it, but you know when, when it talks about God breathing in the smell of the altar into his nostrils and finds it pleasing? Have you ever gone to your neighbor's house for a barbecue and before you get to the house, you smell the meat cooking and it's pleasing to your nostrils? That's what God's talking about there. It tastes good. They don't burn the food up. They cook it. Certain parts they burn up. Certain parts they cook. The part that's cooked, the priests get to eat along with their family. And so the old adage is, um, holy Israel equals fat priests. Because they're getting lots of those Offerings, the appropriate offerings and sacrifices. So uh, what they would do, though, because there's no temple there, not eating in the temple, so they would put it, in the, put it in the fold of their garment, like in their sleeve. And they had figured out, the, the, the rabbis basically had created these uh, rules about this. And one of the things that they came up with is uh, consecrated meat can't touch unholy things. So when you put the meat in the fold of your garment, your garment becomes consecrated as well. But if your garment touches something, it doesn't consecrate the next thing. Right? It only goes so far. 
and um, uh, had this wonderful little story. We were, we were with Veronica the other day, and she was telling us, um, and she gave me permission. She's looking crazy right now, like I'm about to say something, but she gave me permission. She, uh, she dared me to share this with you, actually. So Veronica's sitting in the cafeteria. Was this Tuesday? At Tuesday in school, right? And all of a sudden, everyone starts freaking out and, and going, ah, ah. And, and Veronica, who walked into your cafeteria on Tuesday? Devin McCourty. Devin McCourty from the Patriots. Devin McCourty, who uh, is, has wonderful hands, doesn't he? Wonderful, wonderful hands. Perfect hands. Beautiful hands. The guy can, can do amazing things with those hands. But you know what he chose to do on Tuesday? He chose to shake Veronica's hand with those beautiful hands. And so what Veronica wanted to do was to cut her hand off so that she could preserve this beautiful, beautiful consecration. Because she touched the hands of Devin McCourty, then her hand is now sacred. But she knew she couldn't do that, so you know what she did? She pulled out her bookmark and rubbed her hand. There it is. She rubbed her hand on the bookmark. But according to the word of God, Veronica, unfortunately, you cannot consecrate a third object. So though your hand was holy, your bookmark is not. That's the rules. You can't consecrate a third object. Indirect consecration doesn't work. Only direct consecration. I want, to th- I want to thank you, Veronica, for giving me a good illustration. Well, but what about the other way around, Haggai says, or actually the Lord says, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? And so in, uh, to understand cleanliness in the Old Testament, it's not just that you're, you're dirty or clean. Uh, this is not, when, when you see the disciples talking about hand washings and all they're not talking about dirty. There's a difference between dirty and clean and unclean and clean. To be unclean means that you're not, you're not ritually um, able, you're not able to be involved in any ritual practices in the nation of Israel. So whether you're a priest or a regular person, you can't enter the temple grounds unless you're ritually clean. Um, and so if you, if you put a sacred object in the fold of your garment then another object can't become consecrated by that. But if you are defiled by something and then you touch a third object, the answer is yes, it does become defiled. And so it's not obvious to us in our 21st century mindset, but what Haggai and what the Lord really is telling the people here is your sacrifices are not acceptable. You are bringing animals to this altar that's been created. We read about it in Ezra. You've been bringing animals to the altar, but they are not consecrated animals because the ones who've been bringing them are unclean. Why are you unclean? Because you still haven't built the temple. Because you're still in disobedience. Because you're still rejecting my commands. And so it's like 
you've been touching dead bodies and then rubbing that all over your sacrifice. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's death. You're bringing death to the place of God. And he says, I won't accept it. He said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Whatever they put on that altar, it's not going to work. I don't accept it. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. Meaning, meaning you go into your storeroom and you're going to get out 20 whatever of grain. But he says, there's only 10 there. You thought you'd stored, you know, you can use whatever measure you want. You thought you'd stored uh, uh, 20 pounds of grain, but then you go, there's only 10 pounds there. So I don't know if the rats got to it. I don't know if it was, you know, there was the mold and mildew who talks about, but he's like, it's just not there. You thought you had more, but you have less. He says, he says you go, and, and the Hebrews here, the Hebrew here is really tricky, so the translation's funny. But it says, when you go to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there's only 20. And I think what probably he's talking about there is you go to press your wine, and you know with this amount of grapes, I should get 50 liters or whatever. And you crush it, and you look in the bottom, and there's only 20. Things aren't going well for you. Have you noticed? And I made this point last week, but I don't want us to assume there's a one-to-one correlation that always, always when you have less than you think you ought, that you're under God's uh, uh, discipline. But sometimes you are. This is not out of God's character. And this isn't a curse that he's, that he's uh, bringing to them. It's a discipline he's bringing to them. We read in Hebrews 12 that, that, um, that we, we respect our parents who discipline us. And if we don't get disciplined by our parents, then we think they don't love us. And that no one enjoys discipline, but we reap a harvest from it, a righteousness and peace. So God is trying to bring a harvest of righteousness and peace by diminishing the harvest of the grain and the wine. You see, he, he's far more concerned that you have righteousness and peace than he is that you have grain and wine. So he's willing to limit this so that you get more of that. Does that make sense? So when you experience that in life, be alert, maybe. Lord, what are you doing here? What do you want me to see here? But it's not a rule. It, it's... It's not, you can't just make a one-to-one relationship. Oh, this bad thing happened, then I must be under uh, discipline. No, but be alert, maybe you are. Maybe you are. He says, but I want you to give careful thought to this too. This is verse 18. When the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Now, we read in the last chapter that they're running out of food. There's a drought. There's nothing, there's no, there's no dry land. There's no water coming on the land. But now, now that it's uh, October, it's planting season. So in Israel, the harvesting season mostly ends in, by July, August. It's not like here where we get this 
you know, late fall or early fall, mid-fall harvest, like in October. In October, they're planting for the next year. And what they're hoping is that the rain on the mountains and the snow and the runoff will water the land so that when spring comes, the things that they plant will grow. So I think what he means here, he's saying, look, is there any seed left in the barn? No, there is not. Why? Because you planted it already. Whatever was left, you planted it. Why did you plant it? Because you've seen that now there has been rain. Since I spoke to you last, I have sent rain. And so now you feel confident planting. They wouldn't have planted if the, st- if the ground were still hard and dry. And then he says, Is there yet, um, until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit? It's not late enough in the year, because that'll be next spring that these things will bear fruit, but they've been planted. So they're in this very precarious time. They've taken the last seed they've had and they've planted it, but they don't have any harvest yet. But God is saying, You've seen rain. You've seen that I'm already responding to your faithfulness. From this day on, I will bless you. He's promising them. I know it hasn't been good, but now that you're starting to turn to me, I'm going to respond. Just let it work itself out. Let the blessing work through its course. And I think sometimes when we are called to do something that's hard or scary or something we don't want to do, but God's calling us to a certain type of obedience, sometimes we'll maybe start, but then we're tempted to stop because we don't see the fruit. Have you been in that situation? You're like, well, God, I I did the right thing this one time. Where's all the blessing? He's like, could you give it a week? Maybe a month. You know, if I really wanted to, I could make you wait a year. And it would still be me being good. Sometimes we don't wait long enough. But he does give us these little encouragements along the way. He says, look, from this day forward, I will bless you. Don't worry. Just press on. Because the temptation is when all the seed's in the ground and no harvest has come yet, you start to freak out. Right? And so you think, can we really justify spending this money time and energy on building the temple when we don't even know if we're going to have food to eat in a couple of months. And God's saying, yes, you should do that. You should be obedient even when you're worried that you may not have food in a couple of months because I'll take care of the food in a couple of months. You take care of being obedient. Going back to the beginning of our passage, and Now it helps us, I think that helps us understand what's going on here where God is indeed giving this encouragement because what is the temple that they see in front of them? What do they have there? It's just slabs of stone, right? It's just the foundation. And maybe not even the entire foundation. Maybe it's just the sub-foundation that they have at this point. And and I think they're looking at this thing and, and they're thinking, this is horrible. Now, the temple that was built by Solomon had been plundered by Egypt, by Aram, by Assyria, and by Babylon. And they would come and they would basically surround Jerusalem with their armies and they'd say, we're going to destroy you. And then one of the kings of Israel would say, what if I give you this gold from the temple? Would you leave us alone? And they'd say, sure, we'll leave you alone until next spring. And then they come back, they surround the city. Ah, we're going to destroy you. 
well, we didn't give you all the gold from the temple. How about you take this gold? All right. So they would buy them off and buy them off. And other nations would come. And then they'd restock. And they'd, buy, they'd have to buy off another nation who was surrounding them to destroy them. And it got to the point where Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, literally was ripping the gold off the doorposts and the doors of the temple because there was nothing left to take to satisfy and then finally, in 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. And all of Israel wails because their hope for restoration is, is gone. Because what does the temple signify even more than a place of sacrifice? The temple is the dwelling place of the Most High God. When the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire led them through the wilderness... And then they stopped. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire would rest on what was then the tabernacle. And then when Solomon built the temple, then the presence of God that was leading them and, uh, and that stayed in the tabernacle came and rested on the temple. And in the holy of holies, right? So there's the holy place. And then inside the holy place, there's the holy of holies. And then inside the Holy of Holies rests and lives and abides the Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. In Hebrew, Holy, Holy of Holies, and Holy, Holy, Holy. Like, uh, there is no, no commas in Hebrew. And so Holy, Holy, Holy can mean Holy of Holies of Holies. And so when those angels cry out, Holy, 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 that's the one who resides in the Holy of Holies that is surrounded by the holy place, the temple. And so God's spirit rests on the temple. And as long as the spirit of God is there, Israel has hope. But when the spirit of God is not there, they have no hope. And so it says, speak to the governors, Zerubbabel, speak to Joshua, the high priest, and all the people and say, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? So this is 520. Temple's destroyed in 587. Right? So it's a long time. But there might be a few people who were small children to see that temple. But they wouldn't have seen the temple in all its glory. By that time it had been, you know, sacked and, and ravaged and... and Desecrated, but it was still standing. And now there's just some stones next to each other on the ground as a foundation. Because who of you saw it in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains on you. Do not fear. And he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. What in the world? I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. What God is saying is, uh, you ever... You ever sit on your couch in a blanket and like 
you're eating, and you're eating chips, and you eat too many chips. And then at the end, you have to go shake the blanket. And then all the little chips fall out. I do it outside so I don't have to sweep. I was like, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and what's going to fall out? All the treasures of heaven and earth are going to fall out. Once more, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth because the silver is mine and the gold is mine. He says, I'm going to fill this house with glory. You don't even have to do it. You build it and I'll fill it. I'm going to fill it with gold. I'm going to fill it with silver. And by the way, this does happen. You know, Babylon took off all the treasures of the temple. They took off, they took the, all the, this, the holy, the holy uh, elements were taken like the, the the pans and the plates and the cups and the, and the spoons and the lavers and all these things that are needed to do the work of, of the sacrifices, the work of the temple, they were hauled off. And you know what happens? He says, send them all back to Israel. God literally shakes the nations of the riches and he puts them back in the temple. But the people can't see it, right? They just see a slab of stone. They don't see that, that this is going to be splendid, splendid again. And they don't understand that, that they're, they're thinking, we don't, have any, we don't have any gold, we don't have any silver, how are we going to do this? And God says, I'm going to fill it. I own it all anyway. And not only that, but the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. It's going to be even better than what you remember. So it starts with just a slab of rock, but in four years, in four years, they finished this temple, and it's bigger than Solomon's temple. And so there's this reality of what they see, but then there's the promise of what's to come. And then the holy utensils are brought back in, and God does bring in riches to this temple. And not only is it bigger than Solomon's temple, but in time it will be in some ways more splendid than Solomon's temple. So you've got, um, you've got uh, more people of the world come to the new temple than ever came to the old temple. So there's not only more of, the, of God's faithful Jewish people, but also more of these proselytes, these, these uh, God-fearers come to the temple. So they have to build this massive court of Gentiles to receive the people who are coming to experience the worship of God on earth, who are not even Jewish. And then not only that, but Herod uh, builds all these things around the temple, and it becomes this massive, amazing, wonderful structure for the worship of God. And God says that he will fill his temple, not only with things, but with himself. So right away, there's, this, there's a reality and there's a promise. And the promise of a grander structure is, is fulfilled. But there's also, if you know, and it, you know, this is how prophecies work. Prophecies have multiple fulfillments over time. Right? So Isaiah says, the virgin will be with child. And, and actually, his wife, who was still a virgin. Let's not, let's not go there yet. Uh, his wife, who was still a virgin ends up getting pregnant and having a child, and that's the first fulfillment of the prophecy. But then later, Mary, who remains a virgin, has a child, and it's Jesus. Right? God tells uh, David, today you have become my son, and I have become your father. But one day, 
the Son of God will appear, who will, and God will be his Father, and he will be his Son. And so there's these multiple fulfillments. And so the first fulfillment is this building. But there is a second fulfillment. Is that the church becomes the temple of God. So by the way, that building isn't there anymore. It was destroyed again in 70 AD by the Romans. But this body of Christ is called God's temple. And so there is a degree to which we now occupy the place of that structure. And is, is this temple grander than that temple? It used to be if you wanted to find God, you'd have to go, wherever you were in the world, you'd have to go to Jerusalem. But now, God occupies and dwells in his temple all around the world. And so instead of being forced to come there, God has gone out to the nations in his people, the church. And we see this in verses, there's multiple verses like this, but 2 Corinthians 6 says, we are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so we see this promise being fulfilled uh, right there in, in the church after Jesus comes. But there is one more fulfillment coming. There is one more way that this promise is being fulfilled. And let's look at verse 20. It says, The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. By the way, same language he used in that last section, right? Except this time he's not shaking the heavens and the earth to wring out of them their riches. He says, this time, it says, I will overturn royal thrones, shatter the power of foreign kingdoms, I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will, fa will fall, each by the sword of his brother. And on that day, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. What's a signet ring? It's the authority of a king. So you, you, you write instructions, you seal it with the signet ring, and then they, everyone knows that came from the king. This is the kind of thing that um, you imagine uh, someone like Joseph would have had. He was high above everyone in Egypt except for Pharaoh, right? Second in command. Or Daniel, who had authority over all of Babylon. <laughs> but not above the king. They would have some, had something like that to signify their authority. Now, what is he talking about here? When is this day? On that day, I will make you, Zerubbabel, uh, my signet ring. I've chosen you. By the way, Zerubbabel does not stay in power very long. But do you know who Zerubbabel is? He's the great, 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 great grandson of David. Probably the wrong number of greats. He's also the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Zerubbabel is being essentially put as a place marker here for Jesus. God's saying, there's going to come a day where I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and I'm going to destroy everything. All the nations, all the kingdoms, all the armies are going to be eradicated. And the son of David will sit again on the throne with all authority, power, and might. 
And so even the church as the new temple is not the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. It's that God is creating a new temple and, and, and it's called a, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And God dwells in this new Jerusalem, which is what makes it a temple. That's what makes something a temple, by the way, is that God dwells in it. And this temple cannot be shaken. In Hebrews uh, chapter 12, 26 and 28, I'm going to read it to you. It quotes Haggai. And it says this. Uh, and he's talking about <laughs> the end of time. He says, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the God that overthrows nations and rulers and armies. He's, he's shaking the earth and the heavens so that everything that can be shaking, shaken is finally destroyed and the only thing that will left is that which cannot be shaken. That's why it's only once more that he'll shake heaven and earth. Only once more. Because nothing will remain that can be shaken. And by the way, do you know what happens? Uh, I've got a little bit of it here. Um, Revelation 21 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Let me read a little bit more of that to you. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Uh, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. All the things that can be shaken are gone. He who seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write these words down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. It is done. And then you know what happens? Get this. There's this holy city. It says, but all the nations of the earth, like who are these other nations? I don't know, but they're there. All the nations of the earth, there's a constant train of people coming into the holy city, bringing tribute. God has shaken the nations and all of their treasures are coming into the holy city. You know, we live in this time between the multiple fulfillments. Um, and so all I really want to close with is this idea. Between, between the moment when the people were brought back to the land, to the time of Haggai, years and years had passed where they had begun the work and they stopped, and they'd begun and they stopped, and they'd begun and they stopped. And after what we read today, four years later, they will finish. But even then, God keeps calling them back to himself. 
You can read about it in Malachi. Again, they're, now they're, they're offering sacrifice in the temple, but they're like sneaking in these sacrifices that aren't acceptable. Like, oh, I've got an I've animal with, that's lame. Let me just sacrifice that one instead of a good one. God's like, no. This is not okay. We're not doing this. And people are robbing God by not bringing their sacrifices and their offerings. And then Jesus comes and there's this great hope. And then what happens? You got people who are lying to God about their offerings. Ananias and Sapphira, they just lie. Oh, here's the offering to the Lord. Is this the whole offering? Yeah, it's the whole offering in the Holy Spirit. Bam! Kills them right on the spot. And then you've got Paul writing to the churches saying, hey, remember how you said you were going to take up an offering to help the people who are poor because of the famine over here? Where's the money? Why didn't you finish? Why didn't you fulfill your commitments? And then constantly repent, 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 repent. We talked about the crazy stuff, but how about the quarreling going on in Philippians, the Philippian church? How about the, Hebrew, the, the, the book of Hebrews? How about the people who are they're considering, they're tempted to return to the law and reject the gospel of Jesus Christ because they don't see the sacrifice, they don't feel forgiven, so they're tempted to rush back to those sacrifices. How about you and me? When before the Lord we, we make commitments and vows and we, and we repent and we turn a new leaf and then we go back to it like a dog returning to its vomit back to our sin, back to our pride, back to our stubbornness, back to our whatever it is that you have, whatever it is that I have. You know, we need to be reminded over and over and over and over again that God is holy and that we must be reverent to his holiness. That God expects the first and the best of what we have, not the last and the least. Now, that puts us in good company, right? You're in good company. You're no different from Israel. You're no different from the disciples. You're no different from the early church. You're no different from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And wonderful things happen for them. And so, there is this sense of, of um, needing to be reminded, but there's also the encouragement, that the kind that God gives here in the book of Haggai. Basically, he says, um, basically, he says, you know, you're not, you're not doing things right, but if you do, I will bless you. It is going to work out for you. And you know what? You don't even have to make it all happen. I'll fill, I'll fill my temple with glory. I'll fill, I'll fill my house with treasures. I will fill my people with my presence. This is the hope. This is the promise. And so, when we have sermons like this, when we have moments like this, maybe it's not just a sermon, maybe it's in a conversation one-on-one with someone, or maybe it's in your time of prayer and the Lord rebukes you, then remember it always comes with a promise. It always comes with an expectation. There's never, I, I said it last week, it's never too late till it's too late. And it's not too late yet. It's not too late yet. 
You know, think of the thief on the cross. It wasn't too late as he's dying. And what a blessing he received. And so church, I commend you, I commend to you this thought that though we need the reminders, we can trust God's goodness, that he will provide his glory through us, in us, around us, among us, because that's the kind of good God he is. Amen. I'm going to pray, but I want to invite you to take a moment. Uh, uh, just where you are, invite you to close your eyes and ask the Lord uh, two things. So one is this. Lord, is there something I'm resisting that you're calling me to that you want me to stop resisting? So that's the first question. Is there something I'm resisting that you're calling me to that you want me to stop resisting? The second question is this. Lord, is there some hope that I'm missing out on. It's keeping me from seeing the joy set before me. Is there some kind of hope I'm missing out on that keeps me from seeing the joy set before me? So take those two questions to the Lord and actually just try to be quiet and see if he speaks to you because we believe that the God who spoke through Haggai still speaks to us today. Let's see what he says. Church, there's a little bit of Psalm 81 on your bulletin cover, but we've got it up here. It says, Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music, strike the timbrel, play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn at the new moon, which we have right now. (laughs) And when the moon is full on the day of our festival, this is the decree for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. When God went out against Egypt, he established it as a statute for Joseph. I have heard an unknown voice say, I removed the burdens from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. In your distress, you called and I rescued you and I answered you out of a thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear me, my people, and I will warn you, if only you would listen to me, Israel. You shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not worship any God other than me. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow 
my ways. How quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their punishment would last forever. But you, but you would be fed with the finest of wheat. With honey from the rock, I would satisfy.